back to This Film Not Rated, a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network. I'm Eric. I'm Curtis. And we're here to talk about movies that we saw this week with a twist. On this show, there are winners and a loser. The loser is the person with the most points. You get points in one of two ways. You can either claim an opinion as fact, like it's absolutely wrong to be sexually aroused by car crashes. Or you can say something subjective and either take the point, like, I don't think there's anything sexy about car crashes. Or... You can have about 60 seconds to support the reason you formed your opinion using objective details, avoiding the buzzer. Like, it sets off a trauma response, I feel like you'd have to associate it, there are a lot of things psychologically that have to happen in order for that to work, and so it doesn't really work that way for me because I've never had the experiences that I believe one would have to have required in order to be sexually aroused by car crashes. So, what did you watch this week? I watched Crash. Wait, Crash, the 2004 Academy Award winning film? No. Crash, the 1996 David Cronenberg movie. I wonder what that's about. Uh huh. <laughs> and I watched uh, Raya and the Last Dragon. Ah, right, okay. And I watched Howl's Moving Castle with you, and I watched Color Out of Space based on The Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft. All right. I am incredibly curious about Crash, so why don't we start with that? The entire movie is about sex, and specifically the sexualization of car crashes. And When I think of the term psychological thriller, I don't usually think of the word erotic being put at the front of it. Um, the word is symphorophiliacs. The main actor is uh, James Spader. He, he plays the uh, lead role. In the very beginning of the movie, he's having sex with a co-worker on top of a car on a movie set. The very next scene, he's having sex with a camera assistant girl in a back room on the movie set. And early on in the movie, he gets into a car crash while looking at pornography. After the car crash was done, and you see the driver of the car project into the uh, in, in, into James Spader's car, oh. the very next thing you see is uh, Holly Hunter's character whip out a boob and start masturbating right there in the car wreckage. And so from that point on, James Spader's character is going down this rabbit hole of fetishizing car crashes. So it's a lot of sex scenes. Oh. But is it is it filmed? Is it like, is it an explicit thing or is it more of a documentary style sort of non-judgmental? Not like shot like a documentary, but very, is the point of it to be quote unquote sexy or is the point of it to be introspective about the idea? Because I already, a couple of things that I'm, that I'm automatically, I mean, I I'm, like to joke around about it, but really it might be insensitive to joke around about a paraphilia. Because this stuff kind of is formed unconsciously. Yeah. We don't have a lot of control over yeah. it. And so it's curious to me to have someone frame a hero's journey where the idea is that the thing that sets you on your journey is a paraphilia, this involuntary yeah. thing. Like, yeah. it's it's um, not really necessarily the way I think it works. But I mean, if this answers your question, what I got through most of it was... Cronenberg trying to do some sort of social commentary. Yeah, not long after the uh, car crash, he starts hanging out with Holly Hunter's character, and that's where they meet uh, Casey Jones. I can never remember. Elias Cotius? Elias Cotius, mm. who, who played Casey Jones in the first Ninja Turtles movie. And uh, it's, it's, it's when you're introduced to him that you are going, is when you first start to go down this rabbit hole of this uh, thing that I've been unaware of my entire life, and Crash has brought to my attention. And it it starts out uh, with uh, James Sater going to these uh, demonstrations where it's it's almost like the thrill is it's it's almost the fetish it, it, it's almost like they're fetishizing death and not the car crashes in general. It's just the medium. 
So is the commentary about sex and violence being related? I think like, so. What do you feel like is the general point? What do you feel like is the reason for them pushing into these sort of exploitative areas? I think it's David Cronenberg giving some sort of commentary on, on humanity's weird fascination with death and gruesome events. Because like I mentioned before at the beginning, where you'll slow down at the side of a car... Uh, uh, well, not at the side of a rubbernecking, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah, at the side of a wreckage, at, and you're just kind of like examining to see if you can catch anything. I've seen, I've caught myself doing it a few times before I even saw this movie. But it, it's, 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 yeah, it, it's kind of the association I think between sex and violence and and uh, our weird attraction towards that. It's, it's almost, I guess, a vicarious thing. And the reason why I say I, I think it's them fetishizing death is there's this one particular scene. And it's the scene that I've just described where there's a horrible car crash on a freeway. And it's where James Spader, Elias Cotius, and uh, Deborah Unger are passing this pileup on the freeway. And they slow down and actually full-on stop. Elias and uh, Deborah get out of the car and they start taking pictures. And uh, he stages Deborah in these positions throughout the uh, wreckage as if it's a or, part of the wreckage yeah okay like he stages her because it could be like a sexual shoot or it could be a violent uh, shoot yeah, or well, is it a mix of both uh it's not violent because she's basically on scene he she sits down on her own next to one of the uh victims of the crash and he takes a picture and he leads her to this car he has her get into the car and poses her within one of the cars and starts taking pictures of her there but right after this James Spader mentions how there's a bit of blood on the car and how he think he ran through something that put it on the car. So they go to a car wash and as soon as they're about to go in, Elias and Deborah start having sex in the back of the car while they're going through it. And James Spader's just sitting there watching them as they do it. So this movie, mm-hmm. does it feel like it has a familiar structure or no? Because if the idea is he's descending into this stuff, and the idea is the commentary is that humanity is too obsessed with violence, then you would think he would face some consequence for sinking into this kind of, you know, and and the idea is it's a a thriller of some sort. So I'm kind of curious, where is it leading? Because it's not not necessarily just a scene-by-scene-by-scene roll credits. There's a story, right? Well, yeah, the story revolves around James Spader and his descent into this obsession where it, it... Okay, so you as the observer of the movie, you feel like the way they shot it, you're made to feel like they ended in a bad place while the characters feel like they're enjoying themselves? Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking. So it's kind of like, if I was going to extremely pull this in a wild different direction and I may cut this out I don't know the end of Infinity War okay uh, the Avengers for those of you who don't know this obscure movie is a little bit more obscure than Crash um, Marvel's Avengers Infinity War released by Disney and I think it was 2018 Thanos is framed as the main character yeah. you're introduced through the journey he's trying to commit he faces trials uh, they intentionally key in the end credits that he is Thanos will return the way they do for all the other heroes in the other movies and he ultimately wins at the end of the day so the idea is we see his 
side as if he is a hero in a success story where he, you know, like literally the end of Endgame, we're all cheering because everyone's turning to dust. Mm -hmm. Everyone who would root for Thanos would be cheering because everyone turns to dust. Yeah. You know, and and so, well, the music, you know, obviously doesn't do that kind of thing. But the point is, so you as the observer are feeling bad because the hero gets what they want. Yes. So that kind of the, the, that's like the kid version of the emotions that you're... Yeah, I think that's a good way to to, uh, equate it. It's... So I know there's another movie that I can think of that might be more popular, but... For some reason, it escapes me. And I think it has to do with David Lynch, because this really makes me think of David Lynch. But, I mean, that's the thing. David Lynch just kind of shows you things as he kind of thinks. wants, he thinks of them. Yeah. Like, he just kind of is like, I had had this idea, I put it on to a picture, and that's a piece of art put together. Yeah. If you decide it means something, okay, whatever. Like it's it's not even about interpretation. It's just it is what it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that that's the thing. It is what it is. That's what it sounds like. If that's the way that it's supposed to be with this movie, that you watch a story unfold and the story is what it is. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about the performances. Because Holly Hunter has been in everything from like indie to like. Raising Arizona, far all the way up to being, you know, in Batman v yeah. Superman, oh. and James Spader, of course, never hit mainstream popularity until The Office. So, yeah. this is the like I, I never got far enough into The Office to see James Spader in it. So that's fair, but I'm saying like he was, became Ultron after that. Another title. Oh of the my Avengers. god, he is Ultron. Yeah. Oh my so, god, I forgot about that. It's kind of why there's a probably a link subconsciously in my brain. It's not letting me well, think a little more. Well. Here's, his, his 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 acting is so different in this movie. I didn't even connect him to Ultron. Mm. So like, everyone's like really quiet in this movie. No one gets excited like emotionally. It's just <laughs> kind of flat. They get excited physically. They, they get excited like, yeah, and that and yeah, and excited, that's man. that's all they ever get excited by is is is, is physicality. And like, do you a... feel like you gained any empathy for people who experience paraphilias, or do you feel like more that wasn't the point? It was more of a critique of sexualizing or fetishizing violence. I think it's more of a critique of of sexualizing and fetishizing violence because I I don't gain any empathy. For this specific uh, group. Do for... you feel like there is any potential danger of framing someone with a paraphilia as someone bad or wrong? Because basically, what you run into is especially, like, you know... I think... People hide what they're interested in if they feel like they're supposed to be ashamed of it. So, say that there is a large culture of uh, symphorophiliacs out there who see this... If it goes as far as the movie describes, I much prefer the movie being out there because at least then they have a vicarious way of uh, of 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 that. Where because oh, so it doesn't take a judgmental approach to showing them engaging in that stuff. Not really. It, the only danger that that the movie shows it as is that they they can get so into their obsession that they're willing to cause their own crashes just to get excited. Well, see, I so I would feel judged if I was interested in that, if I were if I were watching that. Yeah. Uh, but so, subjective opinion on the line. You're saying that you you feel like it would be it's a good idea that this would be out there because they have like a vicarious way of experiencing this. Yeah. But inherent in that is the possibility, like this is the only definition you know of someone who exists like that. 
And so it's in your mind the fear that that would escalate to something like that. What if that's not the way that it really works, you know? Uh, I mean, true. I I, I can't... Uh... If it really is a thing. Again, I mean, it's based on a novel from 1973, and it's... I'm not even sure. I'm not, I, I, this is something. If somebody else is willing to Google it and willing yeah. to provide us with the information, you can contact us at filmcriticscritic <laughs> at gmail dot com. I mean, I mean but like I said, because I, I'm I'm so uninformed on on this particular set of fetishization. My, my if it is a fetish, if it is, it could have been created for the novel. It could have been created for the novel. My thing is that if this is is a thing, I and it, it uh... I'm gonna do it. I'm just gonna do it. I'm just gonna right click and I'm gonna hit search Google for some forophiliacs. Criminal Minds. Watching Disasters. Sexually aroused by watching Disasters that they may go out of their way to arrange it themselves. So, categorically, a symphorophiliac is defined as someone who is aroused by staging and watching a disaster. That is this movie in its entirety. So then, the objective backup to your subjective claim that it's good that the movie is out there Mm -hmm. is that... There is a vicarious way, in fact, filmmaking in and of itself is believably faking yeah. real disasters in a way that may scratch yeah. an itch. Yes. So and, and so like that's where I'm going with this. If this movie prevents anything from being staged like that from happening in real life, I think it's a overall net positive. Okay. And so the only thing past that is 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 finding some way for someone to normalize it and find a support group and make it something healthy. I mean, that's yeah. kind of the way that it works with all that is managing it. I mean, I will probably watch it again at some point just because it it's a very slow-paced movie and what that slow pacing does is is it, it it's it's almost hypnotic. It draws you in and it's hard to focus on anything else than what's on the screen. Well, the curious thing to me is do you think David Cronenberg is a symphorophiliac? Yes. It sounds to me like somebody came came across an interesting subject that's not familiar to them. Mm-hmm. So as a movie that's exploring something that might not necessarily have been true to the nature of the creator. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone always says, write what you know. Yes. And make movies about what you know. But here's someone exploring something they may not have known. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Is it a good movie to reference for if you want to write something that you're not familiar with? Or what? Um... That I don't know. Uh, I, okay. Like, yeah, I'm just going okay to say It's okay to not know. Yeah, yeah, right. I'm just going to say I don't know. Based on your time watching the movie, you're not sure. Like, that's, yeah, that's like, a fair... Yeah, I mean, I would think he has a good grasp on what's going on, but, like, again, it's the only thing I've I, I've seen. I don't know how much he, he nailed the concept, but... Yeah, we don't, we don't know. It's an introductory thing, so that's interesting. <laughs> it must be easier to align with the protagonist. The main character. In the beginning, but like I said... But I, like, gradually, if you don't feel what he feels... Exactly. Okay. It, it, it's you, it, there, there's, there's a certain separation at some point that... So a joke I always like to make is, in a sense, this is a better version of uh, Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> where a character <laughs> that you empathize with is seduced into something, and you, you don't want to see them go that way, but you understand why they go that this way. This guy is a lot easier to sympathize with than Anakin Skywalker in Revenge of the Sith. You're not going to justify that? Okay, no. Okay, that's good. All right. I think you could, but all right. I'm well, not going to. <laughs> um, okay. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about Ryan the Last Dragon? 
Raya and the Last Dragon is the newest Disney movie that came out. I can't remember who directed it. I think I'm, I don't know how alone I am in thinking this, but I, I think there is a, a message in there about, uh, oddly enough, the importance of religion. Where the hmm. the dragons in the movie are like seen as these godly characters that used to live among the humans. Where we start in the movie is that uh, all the dragons are now gone, and humanity is now fighting. Where before, when the dragons were there, they were united as one. Mm. Uh, basically, there are these entities at the time of the movie that are born through the distrust of humans between one another. Mm. They can't go through water, though. They they are unable to touch it. And so water in the movie has this kind of purifying effect okay. or presence throughout this. And the reason why I bring up East Asian culture is you think back to uh, monks from feudal Japan or priestesses. One of the ways that they purify themselves is they go and wash under a waterfall. So with the idea of purification, that made me think about that, especially with what I've seen through cool. anime and, yeah. and uh, other movies. It's basically... It's a message about unity, above all else, is the best way to put it. Because uh, at this point, in, and as, as soon as the movie starts, humanity is sectioned off into their different tribes and uh, are violent towards uh, outsiders. And it's, it's and... through Raya that uh, you uh, start to uh, get sort of like a collaboration between people from different sections of the country. Okay. Uh, so that was subjective and justified by... Okay. Yeah. When you watch Raya, you're getting a story about unity. Yes. Raya's whole backstory stems from her being betrayed by someone very early on. And so, obviously, based on that, there's going to be some point in the movie where Raya has to confront this person again and learn forgiveness and blah, blah, blah. And So you felt... Okay, so you... Okay. And it, it's... It, does, it doesn't do anything new, but what it does, it does well and enough to keep you engaged throughout the entirety of the movie. <laughs> that's... Yeah, that's, that's rough. Mm-hmm. We're reviewing a new movie. So. so set design, does this look like most of the other Disney animated movies that aren't with Pixar? Because I've noticed an increasing level of detail in the animation as you go from Tangled yeah. up to Frozen 2. It's, it's a lot more colorful than... Those past movies, and and by by that there are certain sequences in the movie where, uh, it's uh, a wider range of colors used. Yeah, like a, a much wider, brighter, range. poppier colors. Both uh, at the beginning of the movie, before everything's happened, you see a lot of green and vibrance, and um, after that opening section, you get to present day, and it's brown, it's desert, it's dry, it, and as the movie goes on, more and more color gets brought back into the film. Mm, okay. Yeah. Performance-wise, details and animations of the face, the humans feel more or less like humans. I noticed that their faces are shifted to be a little more proportional to uh, human, like, life, yeah. real-to-life proportions. As opposed to, like, the big-ass eyes of Elsa and Anna. And, you know, even Tangled, they have, like, they have geometric faces. Yeah. Uh, with like, some characters, yeah, but Raya herself still has kind of like they're not as big, but they're but they're still like bigger. Well, they have a history of letting the characters have bigger eyes, particularly yeah. the ones they want you to empathize more with, because okay. it's easier to empathize because you can do more exaggerated right emotions with them. But yeah, I, I really am fascinated about how they uh, animated the uh, dragon and the design of the dragon that they chose to go with 
reminds me a lot of like you uh, you know the Chinese dragons you uh, see a lot in uh, that a lot of people it's like a lot of people standing underneath of a decorated yeah thing in a parade right okay that that's the kind of dragon design that they go with there and and it's kind of has this kind of slithery kind of motion very similar to what you would see say in a. Uh, that uh, one creature in in uh, Crimes of Grindelwald. Which creature, though? Are you talking about the fire dragon, or are you talking about the little creature that he throws out the window in the beginning? In Grindelwald, it's the creature that they uh, use to escape uh, the Ministry of Magic in that movie. And he throws it out the window, yeah. Okay. Jerk. <laughs> the way that they animated the dragon itself was something I hadn't seen in Disney before, and it, it's a... Uh, I can't say slithery, because it's, it's kind of like a, a smooth kind of thing. That's all, all right. that I can think of for, for... Let's transition, keep it a little bit kid-friendly, okay. um, before going back to, like, the adult uh, horror kind of thing. Okay. So, like, you know, adult, gritty, real horror, absolutely kid-friendly, brand new, mm-hmm. kid-friendly, not brand new, not, you know, Howl's Moving Castle. Howl's Moving Castle. What made me want to talk about Hell's Moving Castle? Well, I'll tell you, Curtis. Um, <laughs> so the cast, Emily Mortimer, Lauren Bacall, uh, Gene Simmons, but not that Gene Simmons, uh, <laughs> Christian Beale, Josh Hutcherson, and Billy Crystal caught my attention. And the other thing that caught my attention was the fact that it doesn't look like other anime. It's based on a French book. Right? I think so. British. A British author. It looks like it's depicting a world outside of Japan. And the architecture is not particularly Japanese. No. Like, the the scenery that you're seeing. The castle itself feels like something more out of a storybook than that kind of thing. And what I mean by that is... There's no real rational logic to it. It looks more like something you'd see depicted in a Dr. Seuss book or a depiction of Willy Wonka's factory. I, the closest thing that I can think of is, is, is how Harry describes Ron's house in the uh, Harry Potter books where it, yeah. it, it looks like it's being held up by magic. Yes. That's what drew me to want to see it. And then what made me want to talk about it afterwards was... A weird trend that I noticed in a lot of the anime that we've been watching, Mm -hmm. which is presenting you with ideas. Okay. Not exploring them or paying them off. This is what I'm referring to with this movie in particular, specifically. So I'm on the clock for 60 seconds. Yeah. Okay. You have Christian Bale, and he's told that if he turns too many times into a flight creature, he is going to not be able to turn back. Mm-hmm. That never happens. Okay. There is a, a sort of moment where they present you with the payoff of that, where he's at the bottom of a pit and he's a creature. But very quickly that's resolved without tying it in verbally or through action to the rest of the story. Okay. Turnip head. Yes. The character Turniphead, who is a basically a scarecrow that can hop on its stick most of the time, is, spoiler alert, revealed to be someone important. Not spoiler alert. Okay. Okay? It, it's not entirely understood what importance that character has. Right. Okay? And yet, if you had focused on what importance the missing character has, mm-hmm. at least it would have given some weight to why things are happening. Like we feel, I feel so focused 
on the tiny story. So like Summer Wars, uh, you have a very high-stakes, big, consequential, world-ending event going on. Mm -hmm. But they're so focused on the relationships between the characters that you don't spend any screen time or animation time because it would take a lot to animate a four-hour movie that gives time for all plot threads. Right. And gives a good weight and balance to them. Um, you have such focus on the character relationships and the details of the lead character's, you know, curse and journey, which is just very simple. She's cursed to be an old woman mm -hmm. and she gets swept up as she's, uh, you know, out of her home into Hell's Moving Castle, develops a relationship with the fire that is keeping the castle alight, voiced by Bailey Crystal mm -hmm. and Hal and the people who are picked up along the way. Right. So... But yeah, like like for to to your point, you don't even know that there's a war going on until after Grandma Sophie is part of Hal's castle. Like yes. it, it's it's not a talked about thing. Yes, and uh, the creatures that are the antagonists, these bubbly, oily, goopy black creatures that come through the the doors and all this kind of stuff, mm -hmm. they are suddenly there. I don't know why they are the way that they are. I don't know who they're working for. Or I guess I kind of do, but oh. I don't see them actively interact. There's no scene like in Lord of the Rings when Saruman brands the lead of the Urukai, right? You know, and with this movie, there's just a single throwaway line by Powell and Calcifer that they're magicians like how who have turned themselves into these creatures for the service of of the king, and it's 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 a quick line that's in the movie for I don't know thirty seconds. Yeah, it, the focus of the actual footage you're seeing and of the story that's being written seems to be the whimsy and enjoyability of magic. Yeah. So why they include a story that is teasing the weight and consequences of overuse of magic and is... You know, I, I was guessing through this whole movie what the relationship is, the way that the curse functions on the girl, because she randomly de-ages. Yeah. And leaving that open to interpretation, I think, can work for some people. And I can see that the one of the credited themes of the movie is old age and compassion. Mm -hmm. Like, not, you know, we, we, we've talked a little bit with the Mount Nariyama. Okay. Um, that the... Elderly are sort of encouraged to go away, you know, to yeah. put it delicately. And so, an age and beauty is related with youth and, and impossible standards. Yeah. And so, the most that they explore this is that the character seems to de-age when she's in a good mood. So, there's a loose interpretation that maybe she feels better about herself in this way. Yeah, it, it's never fully explained. So like they're, they're and then Howell calls her beautiful, you know, and you don't it's, you don't have a lot of time. It's not like you have a lot of time to feel for her when she feels that. There's not a time when there is a moment where Howell calls the attention back to her, and so she instantly ages. Mm -hmm. But there was never this sort of moment, and this is the best way I can describe it. I expected there to be a moment. Where she's like, oh, but you can't possibly love me. I'm so, like, ugly. And he holds up a mirror and, like, she's old by our view and she's young in the mirror. You know? Yeah. So the idea is maybe the curse was only her perception of herself is what she sees, you know? Or something like that. Like, I th I, I, I think that's that's 
that's close to to what I think. I, it just we don't. Th- th- there is no final yeah decision made because this stuff. This, these were the big three things that came out of me: the war, mm-hmm. the flight, and flight not just in terms of flying, but flight in terms of them constantly being on the run. Even the castle has legs. Yeah, and uh, you know, old age versus youth. Yeah, there's. It's just like a reflection of everything that Miyazaki likes. He likes flying he doesn't like war mm-hmm. and he wants uh beauty to not be defined in a restrictive way yeah i think it's why miyazaki chose this movie yeah, but... to adapt over other things that that, that he could have because this is one of the few things that he's done where it's not his original idea i think mm. it's this one and i think castle in the sky is based off of a book too but like most of the other things that he's done are, are just his his imagination and, and you see these themes like consistently throughout his other films, mm-hmm. I th- but I think this one gets to like what he sees as getting to the heart of what he likes most about storytelling. So this is a question I have for you. Okay, why not make a trilogy of movies? One about old age and beauty. Hmm. One about flight and about Hal's continual relationship with hmm. the lead character yeah. and the dangers of his engaging in magic and. The potential consequences of the way he uses his abilities, leading into a high-stakes third mm. act about pacifism exploring war. Right. Um, I can't speak to Miyazaki for for him, but what I think is that... Uh, just giving yourself time to explore these themes, I'm just saying. Go ahead. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. I th- Because uh, the way that uh, the, the industry works differently in uh, Japan is... Uh, if if there's no mark marketability for it, if people aren't buying the merchandise in in Japan, it's it's not about how many people have seen it. It's about how many people are buying the merchandise, and uh, with there with there always being that uh, that uh, unknown, creators in Japan are typically hesitant to try and make long uh, planned projects like uh, like that. For them, it's better to try and get all their ideas out in one project, if if at all possible. That's kind of where I think this is coming from. So I wouldn't go so far as to call this a Star Wars prequel, which I have my gripes. I really think there is originality and intent in why those movies have so much packed into each one. Mm -hmm. But those are two and a half hour movies that cram as many characters and things into it. And I don't think it's that they crammed as much into it to turn them into toys, but they sure as hell made every single possible thing they could in that movie into a toy. Yes, and so what I'm kind of hearing that you're picking up is it's kind of the same thing. They are encouraged to make stories that are full of merchandisable, like, monetizable aspects. Yeah. Okay. Like, and it, it, it's not just that way with, with the movies. Like, it, it's that way with the anime in, industry as a whole in, in Japan, which is why nowadays uh, you're lucky to get a season two of a show that you like because maybe people aren't buying the merchandise the way that the company wants them to. So there's no profit in making another season so i found a better way to relate this okay this was a, a large book apparently mm-hmm. only so much of it could be adapted into one down into one story yeah now, you know when they were considering making the first harry potter movie they were considering adapting sorcerer's stone through goblet of fire into one movie yeah which they did with the dark tower <laughs> yep and it's, it's something they tried to do. Aragon, they they whittled down in a way that they stuck to doing one movie in the hopes of doing more. But still, they, they made a, it as short as possible. They cut out a lot of stuff, yeah. Um, it's interesting that this movie 
widely has positive reception Mm -hmm. and yet has the sort of earmarks of things we don't like in a lot of other things. And I didn't read this note that it was a comp. I didn't know before I saw the movie that it was a big complex book trimmed down for a movie, Mm -hmm. but I felt it when I watched it. Yeah. That's uh... so I, 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 I gotta say like, that's, that's something that ultimately I feel like you're going to end up being along for a ride that is light. Mm-hmm. Like, like colors, yeah. light emotions, light on exploring different areas mm. and, and based in like comedy. Yeah. And it makes me wonder how many of the Disney animated, uh, movies that we watched mm-hmm. growing up. How much there is to the stories that they're based on. Yeah. Because I know the Jungle Book is a long series of books. Yeah, and when that's I, I went back and watched the animated Jung Jungle Book not too long ago, and that movie is segmented into chapters. And it's so bare bones. It is so bare bones. Yeah. So You and How's Moving Castle, what's your relationship with it? Oh yeah. <laughs> Well, let's go into the animation. I, as far as the animation goes, I don't think it's that different from anything I've seen from Miyazaki before. It's it's his style of animation. Okay. And uh, it's it's how how would you note it? Like the way we note David Fincher's direction. It's 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 very vibrant. It's very fluid. Okay. Especially for for its time, like you, it, it, it's it's the same kind of thing you would uh, get from uh, Spirited Away. Just tell me why the old lady went with them. Just tell me, Curtis. Just tell me why the old lady went. Just tell me why they kept the old lady with them. Not the old lady, the lead actress. Oh, the her? other one who showed up. Why? Because Sophie is uh, inherently compassionate towards people. It's not are... her castle. It's not her castle, but she. But uh, she her... wants it. Howell wants her to have what she wants. Howell wants Sophie to be happy, and if 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 caring for that old woman makes her happy, then it's okay with Hal. I would have yeeted that woman. <laughs> I don't think that has anything to do with culturally, okay? It has to do with her obsession no. being a direct conflict of interest with the interests of the main character. <laughs> I get, and then the, the, the movie tries to to present her as a character who's going through an arc, but the arc never happens. See, she just is... She's presented as, as evil, and then later on she's presented as not evil, and there's nothing to combine those two things. Right. She never makes that decision. She just sort of settles. Yeah. And then she becomes a whole different kind of roadblock for <laughs> in the story later. And it's just like, wh- why? Why are we letting her do this? I think like, for, I think the reason why Sophie wants her around is because she kind of acts as a, a, a mentor character and she's there to kind of help Sophie sort through her feelings of, of, of romance and love towards Hal. Because that's, that's the role that she plays when she's in the castle. That I can see. Okay. Well. But again, those connecting points aren't there. So what would bring you back to revisit Howl's Moving Castle as opposed to another Miyazaki movie? Uh, I, I always go back to Howl's Moving Castle because no matter how many times I watch it, I always find something else that I didn't notice before. And I will keep doing that until it doesn't happen anymore. So that just leaves Color Out of Space, based on the Color Out of Space, uh, was made by, I'm going to bring up the director 
Richard Stanley because he's interested in making a trilogy of H.P. Lovecraft-based movies. And so this would be the first of that. Mm-hmm. And the idea is, of the short story by H.P. Lovecraft and of the movie, is something drops from outer space. Okay. It's depicted as coming in a meteor in this movie. I'm not sure if it's the same in the short story. But what it is is a color. So you see that there's this vibrant pink, purple, yeah. hybrid sort of like color. Which in the movie Nicolas Cage describes as, I think it was pink or... Really, it's no color I've ever seen before. That's just the closest I can get. So you get that what they're doing in the movie is they're showing you something to represent something that that, it, that can't be depicted. Right. Uh, so you get a cue when you see that color, you know something else is going on. It's not quite right. Okay. Um, and that's that was the first thing that I knew I was going to want to talk about. Because yeah. there's in movies, there is the intent of implying something uh-huh. and showing something directly. Okay. And in a story that you feel like, by all accounts, needs to be written or needs to be implied, where you just see a character staring at something off screen and you judge it by their reaction and their performance, mm-hmm. no. Everything, they explicitly decide on a depiction and show it to you and then tell you what you're seeing is not actually what you're seeing. I... As far as Lovecraft goes, that's kind of like his whole thing, where he shows you the unexplainable, and that's the that's where the horror comes from well, for Lovecraft. But no, that's the idea. The idea is you can't... The, 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 the argument is you couldn't adapt Lovecraft in a true sense, because how do you depict visually what madness is in a truthful way? Right. So, the interesting thing is that they took this approach instead of taking a... Uh, an implied approach to what happens. You see creature horror. Like when they have a, they Nicholas Cage and his family live on an alpaca farm and have refused to move. The governor of that town County wanted to buy their land from them so that they could use it for this thing that they have going on, but they've refused to sell. And so when this meteor hits and the news hits, the mayor's like, I can make a big deal out of the news out of this and drive a bunch of people here and interrupt their farming and maybe that'll make it inconvenient for them to move. And you get the sense that that's what she wants to do. Okay. But she's not, she's in the movie for like two seconds and she's gone. The real story is that this color twists reality and warps and consumes and destroys psychologically and physically. Okay. So the main protagonist is actually the daughter Uh who is into the occult. Okay. She starts by doing a sort of a... I don't remember the word for it. Okay. So she escalates from doing something that seems like a hobby or an interest to her Uh to, like, cutting herself up out of desperation because of what's going on. And the color is gradually making some people disappear, but then all of their alpacas are turned inside out and turned into one alpaca hybrid thing. And one of the more horrific things that you will see comes when a mother is worried that the color is going to do something like that again. So she grabs her son and holds him really tight. And then the color overwhelms them. And then you can watch what happens after that for yourself. Nicolas Cage. We started watching Vampire's Kiss a couple of weeks ago. 
<laughs> Never finished it, but yeah. You made a particular comment about Nicolas Cage that I thought was interesting. His accent. Yep. What was that accent again? Uh, I, 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 I said the accent was like a mix of uh, California surfer boy yes. mixed with an uh, English accent. Mixed with an attempt at an English accent while someone is trying to be a professional businessman. Yeah. So there's something like... You know, you know, like, <laughs> R, like, yeah. he's pronouncing his R's, but doing British and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, hopefully this isn't cringy enough that I'll have to, like, delete it, but, you know, whatever. Because I want people to understand that when Nicolas Cage goes from his regular kind of thing to when he's yelling and he goes back into this vampire's kiss accent arbitrarily throughout <laughs> this movie. Um, it is not your typical Nicolas Cage, Mandy, fun, insane movie. Okay. But he does do this flip-flopping accent thing. Like, I wouldn't expect to get out of this what you got out of Mandy, but you might. I don't know. But what you will get is Nicolas Cage. It's almost like he did every take in two different accents, and they decided which random scenes. The scenes where he's feeling more angry with people, they decided to go with the other, the accented ones. Okay. And just, like, suddenly he was like, no, daughter, it's okay. Like, come with me. It's fine. And then go in there and be with your mother. Like, it's it's a movie that is trying to take itself so seriously and then so deliberately not so in mm-hmm. this one area. This color is gradually consuming this environment that it's in. And you find out that it's poisoning the water. Oh. And so, and that's, this isn't a twist or anything. Basically, it's a growing threat because the idea is that the mayor in that town want to develop a freshwater manufacturing bottling plant that would go across the entirety of the East Coast. So, there's, you know, it's, Uh. it's, it never really goes anywhere with that because that's not the point. The point Mm. is the family. Mm Mm-hmm. And in terms of just a a horror, uh, psychological horror, body horror, physical, um, you know, there's a lot in Color Out of Space uh, that's going on with each character Mm -hmm. and a lot of characters. And yet it's under an hour. It's an hour and 51 minutes, 45 minutes without credits. Mm. So it tries to explore a lot. It's kind of in a, at a very rapid pace. Okay. So, Lovecraft Country came out last year. Mm-hmm. And a part of Lovecraft Country is a development on the appeal of Lovecraft's stories while keeping one foot in the, foot in the acknowledgement that he had very um, racist and... Xenophobic? Xenophobic uh, worldviews. And that kind of were very purposefully represented in his writing. Fear of the unknown yeah, kind of bleeds into these areas that seem to be a part of his writing and a part of his yeah, I mean. world. So, Color Out of Space, they have a uh, minority lead character who is mm. trying to help the family. Okay. You can take H.P. Lovecraft's work and you can adapt it in a way that is just focusing on the ideas of horror of the unknown in space mm-hmm. and in the depths of the unimaginable, yeah. like a color that you can't see or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Or you can take it the way Lovecraft Country did and you can you can have it be an exploration of 
why people fear what's unknown to them or the X-Men explanation of it. People don't understand mutants, so they fear them and that gets politicized. Um, that being said, I just realized that something that I want really badly in this world is an HP Lovecraft X-Men movie. So thank you all for listening to our weird trip from, uh, you know, uncomfortable topic to slightly more comfortable topic to uncomfortable topic. Um, if you enjoyed any part of this, then we won't judge you because that's not what we do on this podcast. So please come back. And uh, join us next week for this film not rated episode ten. I'm Eric. I am Curtis. You can find me at High Contrast FLM on Twitter. You can find me at Nineties uh, Gamer Four O Seven. Not dot com. I said dot com last time. Ninety Gamer Nineties Gamer Four O Seven. And on Twitch at Merrick underscore Tainment. And if you want to see more content that's not as uncomfortable, you can go to the MusicCityDriveIn dot com and you can look at the Music City Drive In podcast network. Thank you all for listening.